Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, as we uh, begin there in verse 9, as we look at our study as God leads us this morning. And basically, I have this question for us this morning. Do I have to be nice? Now, think about that question for a moment. You've asked yourself that question a time or two in your life, have you not? Maybe you've looked at your spouse and you ask, do I really have to be nice to this person? Do I really have to be nice? Maybe you ask your pastor, maybe you ask a fellow church member, do I really have to be nice? Will Rogers, I think, said that he never met a person he didn't like. Well, other he, otherwise, he didn't get out very often. Or perhaps he never joined a Baptist church, right? There are going to be some people that are difficult that come in life. There are going to be some people that you'll find all around you, in your family, in your friends. You'll see people out in the community. There'll be times when they will challenge you and challenge your disposition. How should you react? How should you demonstrate Christ-likeness? Do you have to be nice? Well, I think as you read this passage, you'll see that Paul not only says we have to be nice, he says we ought to demonstrate love itself. Love. That, that central characteristic of the believer. Love. Romans chapter 12, that's where Paul basically has made a transition. Those first 11 chapters... He basically set the foundation of what the gospel was and how it impacts our lives. These last few chapters of the book of Romans tells us how we live out the gospel, how we offer ourselves before God, how we serve Him, and certainly how we love one another. Look in verse 9, if you will. There Paul writes and he says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. Now, there in our translation, we see the injunction. We see the encouragement, the challenge that we are to let love be without hypocrisy. But I want you to know in the original language, basically there is no verb. It's almost like Paul gives us a heading now. As he's been talking about living out our faith, as he's been talking about the church in in specifically about how we are to demonstrate our giftedness in the context of the church. Here, he basically gives us a heading. What it means or what it says is love sincere, love genuine, or genuine love, unhypocritical love. It's kind of like he says, here's the heading of the rest of this passage. I want you to know that what I'm trying to describe to you is a genuine, unhypocritical Love. Now, certainly Paul wanted us to love one another and he would command us to such things. But here he basically gives us this heading for the rest of the chapter that we are to demonstrate genuine, unhypocritical love. That word genuine, it basically describes an individual who does not act under pretense. He doesn't assume some type of role. As, as you know, this word hypocrite can often be used to describe actors there in the first century world. In other words, they would assume roles. And there's nothing wrong with that. 
as far as acting in a theatrical production. Some of you have done that, right? No, because you didn't. Right? Some of you were, some of you. Y'all got to help me here this morning. Y'all see I'm already struggling. You saw the baptism, right? You know I'm struggling. <laughs> help me out, folks. Many of you have been in the theater. Many of you have been in a production. We grew up in a high school where we had many different productions and people would play different roles. And that's fine in that setting. But what Paul says is for believers that we are not to act under pretense or play different roles. We are to be genuine individuals. And we are to demonstrate love genuinely to one another. That we're not here just wearing masks on Sunday morning or wearing masks during the week. He says that we ought to have an authentic, genuine love for one another when we come together. That's basically what he's saying in this passage. And what he specifically states is that we ought to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, verse 9, he gives us the parameters of this genuine love as well. He says, abhor what is evil cling to what is good. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Abhor means to hate especially evil. And to cling to good, that is the same word, that word cling is the same word which speaks of the joining together of a husband and wife in a marriage relationship. The idea of cleaving together that you find between a husband and wife, the same idea that's found in verse 9 about how we are to join ourselves, we are to cleave ourselves to that which is good. So there are parameters of love as we demonstrate it to one another. Genuine love that is guided by discernment and truth. Charles Ryrie gave us this picture, this image of the way we are to love one another. He described love as a river which was bounded by each side with banks of truth and discernment. That somehow truth and discernment basically guided the river, guided the love that we had. When truth and discernment are somehow broken down, well, love spills over. And while that seems to be a good idea, the idea of love spilling over into different people, if love is not bound by truth and discernment, that love spilling over can actually bring disaster. Unfortunately, in the last week or two, we know what a disaster can look like when a river would somehow overflow or where water would flood different areas we know what damage can be made and sometimes that love that we have if it is not bound by truth and discernment it can bring disaster now i know again some of you look at me and say what are you talking about are we're to we're to have love and that love is to abound yes love is to abound but it is always to be guided by truth and love let me give you an example. I had a lady one time to tell me how much she loved people. Now, usually if somebody has to tell you that, they probably have an issue, right? But she was telling me about how 
one day she was just talking to me and she said, Pastor, I just, I love everybody. I love everybody. I, I just, I love people that are, that disagree with me. I love difficult people. And I remember she looked at me and she said something like, I, you know what? I even love the devil himself. Now, I backed up, and I was very nice because, you know, I'm supposed to be nice, right? And, but, but there seemed to be something illogical about that. There seemed to be something that did not fit with this idea of saying, yes, I love the devil himself. You see, I think in our culture today, we have totally missed the idea of biblical love. Today, we have decided... That love means that you accept everything that you see. Even if that is displeasing to God, we accept it into our lives. That is not biblical love. Paul gives us what biblical love is. He says it is genuine love, but the love that abhors evil, that hates it especially, and it clings to good. In other words, it is love that is bound by truth and discernment. That love speaks to us, and it is guided by truth. That is what biblical love should be. Genuine love. Love for our brothers and sisters. You've got to love the way he fleshes this out for us. Verse 10, he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. He says, basically, look at one another as members of the family. Now, he's speaking, I think, specifically of those who are believers here. And he says, look around at them and understand they are part of your family. In a few weeks, we're going to celebrate our 90th anniversary, and I'm going to talk more about this, but... Isn't it wonderful to be a part of a spiritual family of believers? You know, for me, I I think of uh, each church that I've served. And I think of how the church itself was not just some institution, but it was a living group of people. And in every case, in every case, The church itself became like a family to me and to my family. You know, when we um, moved off from North Mississippi some years ago and we moved down to Picayune in particular, we were about four and a half or five hours away. Leslie was teaching school. I was going to seminary at the time, uh, trying to pastor this church. And we were so busy. And yes, we'd get up and see our folks sometimes, but... But a lot of times we couldn't see our biological family. We couldn't go up and just visit them anytime we wanted to. We couldn't take, you know. And you know what we had to learn to do? Depend on the people who were around us. In particular, the people of Pine Grove Baptist Church. They became like a family to us. They would invite us over. Fish fries. Fish fries. Just context filled with lemon icebox pie everywhere. 
It was great. It was wonderful. When we went through some tough times, and we'd go through some tough times as a church, as a people, we'd go through tough times. We'd pray together. When we'd go through some great times, we'd celebrate and rejoice. They became a family. And I realized how important it was while I was there at Pine Grove for a church to be a family and for us to love one another as a family should. Now, it's hard to love your family sometimes. I knew I'd get an amen on that one. I just knew it. Sometimes family members can be the most difficult people in your life. Yes, there you go. You're warming up now. But yet they're family. They're family. There is a kinship that you have. There is a relationship that you have. And for us as the people of God, we need to recognize that we are part of a spiritual family. And here he says that we ought to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. It's a family type of love that you are to have. That you are to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. That you are to love the church. When I was at First Baptist Zachary, around Valentine's Day, we launched a campaign in the community. My associate pastor had done this at another church, and he thought it would be good for us to do there at First Zachary, and we had approved it. And what we decided to do is basically get together these yard signs and to give them out to the folks in the church and allow them to just use the yard signs, if they could, if the subdivision allowed it, to put it up in their yards. And the yard sign basically said, I love my church. First Baptist Zachary. I love my church. It was kind of cool. I would drive around town and I'd see those yard signs everywhere. You know? I mean, you would see where your people lived here and your people lived there. And just a confession. Now, you know the way it would go. The church next door must not have liked this campaign. So you know what they did? They, they, they put up a little sign in front of their church that said, We love our neighbor. We almost had a denominational war right there in Zachary or so. But, I mean, they put that down. And, 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 you know, I thought to myself, well, that does sound very good. I mean, that sounds like. But, but you know, I think sometimes we almost, we almost dismiss this idea of loving the church. I mean, because we should be more than that. We, we should love our. And nobody argues that we should love our neighbor. Nobody argues that we should love other individuals. We're going to see that in a moment here in this pa passage. But my friends, at the very base of who we are, we ought to be able to confess our love for the people of God. There should be nothing wrong. You should not feel guilty of being able to say, I love my church. I love the people. Now, when I say the church, I'm not talking about the building. Again, I'm not talking about all the programs. When I say I love my church, I love the flesh and blood. I love the people who show up at our church to serve. I love 
my church. There's nothing wrong with that. We need more people who fall in love with their church, with their people. You know, Jesus loved the church. Jesus loved the church that he was willing to give himself up for it, Paul says, to the Ephesians. And that we ought to love the people of God in such a way that we are willing to give ourselves up. We are family. We are to love one another. In honor, giving preference to one another. I did a study on that and, and found that it really spoke of like a godly competition. Strange. That here Paul would use the idea of a godly competition when it came to love. He knew how we love to compete against one another. He, he knew we, we rooted on other people, cheered on other people. Some of you probably in the last few days, you've been watching a lot of the Olympics. Some of you? Well, for my family, we, we love it. We love to watch the Olympics each night. Some of the favorite parts that we had of the Olympics basically revolved around the swimming. We love the swimming. I hope you did not come by English turn those evenings and find your peace disturbed because you heard my family shouting so loud. My four-year-old would chant, USA, USA, over and over again. We loved it. We, we cheered on. Katie Ledecky. We, 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 we cheered on Simone Manuel. We cheered on Michael Phelps. We cheered on Lily King. We cheered on Ryan Lochte. Maybe not as much now, right? <laughs> but there was something about competition. We like, listen to what Paul says. Paul says, if you're going to compete with one another... Compete on demonstrating love to one another and showing honor to one another. I love that image. That if we're going to put ourselves into something to compete, let's do it in our love for one another. Love your brothers and sisters. And again, he just simply goes down here, not lagging in diligence. In other words, work at it, fervent in spirit. Love that language. Basically says, to set ablaze your heart for God, your spirit for God. Allow God to set you on fire. Allow that love to be passionate, he says. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, particularly there. Paul uses the word koinonia that some of you have heard before. It describes to the, the fellowship of the church, the, the sharing together of all things. In other words, when you see a need in the church, if you see your brother or sister in need, that you are there to help, that you come together, you share with them. Given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. We're going to look in a the last few verses of this chapter in a moment about dealing with your enemies in particular, but basically he gives us a principle here. I think it's a principle that needs to be taught over and over in our churches. It's basically the principle of grace. 
Give people better than what they deserve. Give people better than what they deserve. You may reckon in your reasoning that they don't deserve blessing. You may decide, and you may rightly decide, that they don't deserve a good word from you. Give them one anyway. Give them better than what they deserve. Because I can guarantee you this. One day, one day, you will hope to be a recipient of grace. One day, you will wish for something much better than what you deserve. And the reality is, we've already stood in a place where grace was the only thing that could change or transform our lives. The grace of Jesus Christ. He says, verse 15, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, something very similar. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. God has called us together as a people of God to do life together. To be on mission together. When something pains one of us, it ought to pain the fellowship of the church. When something brings us incredible joy, the church should rally around and celebrate what God has done. It's living in the experience of the church. Love for the church. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. In other words, the mind of Christ that is developing in ourselves. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. That could be disastrous for the ambition of the Romans in the New Testament world. For them to associate with the lowly, the humble, that, that might torpedo their ambition. That might totally damage their potential at success. You know what Paul says? Don't worry about that. You remember you were there to associate with the lowly and the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. In other words, allow pride to flee as you love your brothers and sisters. And then he takes it another step. And maybe this is the tougher step for us. Maybe this is where we see true, authentic Christianity come to the forefront. And that is, we not only love our brothers and sisters in Christ, but when we love our enemies, those who would come against us, we demonstrate love there. Notice verse 17. I want to read the rest of this chapter for us and then make just a few closing comments. Look what he says in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, 
Do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He says, I want you to love the most difficult people that you can find. And again, I think this is where authentic Christianity shows itself. Who we are, Christ Jesus. Sometimes it, look, as difficult as some of the people that we serve with, as difficult as they can be, I believe it's still harder to love that person that enemy that is without, that perhaps attacks, persecutes, whatever that comes against the body of believers. He basically says, do not return evil for evil. He says, have regard for good things. Esteem that which is honorable. You know, I inherited some probably good things from my family, some great things from my family. I'm my growing up, God blessed me in so many different ways. But I've recognized in my life, one of the things that I struggle with that I probably got somewhere in the lineage. I'm not going to tell you which part of it it was, which part of the lineage, but it was in the lineage. The one thing I struggle with, holding a grudge. I said it to you this morning, okay? I just was to get all my faults and failures out this morning. You've already seen so many of them. I'm just bringing them out this morning, okay? I can hold a grudge. Now, none of you can, right? I'm coming to you for counsel this morning. I can. I, I can let something just get down in me, and it can just... It can, it can plague me. And I will tell you, there are times that I wished, well, I wished I could get somebody back in the name of Christ. <laughs> I've always thought if I added that in the name of Christ at the end, that God would be okay with that. If I would do it. But what I've determined, what I have seen, is that God has not called us to hold grudges, has not called us to hold things that would, that would literally tear us apart. Let me just say this to you this morning. For those of us that hold grudges, do you understand that it does nothing to the other person, really? It really does not harm the other person like you are thinking it will. Most of the time, they don't even care you have a grudge. But it will harm you. It will. It will be like an acid that will eat away at your heart. It will be something, if you're not careful, will control you. Where you want to get back at someone else. Paul says, don't do that. As much as depends on you, when it comes to you, he says, you live in peace. And you live peaceably 
with other folks. Now, we recognize it's not always possible, but as much as depends upon you, you should be part of the solution. We see our world turning to violence, turning to disruption. And let me say to you that the only hope that we have as a people is the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only people who can convey that peace are those who find their identity in the Lord Jesus Christ. And somehow we ought to be people. We ought to be people that are conveying peace. We ought to be people who are helping to reconcile others. He says, as much as it depends upon you, you live peaceably. And notice, he says, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. Now, so many different people have tried to take this passage and say, well, does it mean you don't defend yourself? This is not an injunction against self-defense. This is not trying to inform our national security. People, if y'all are in, that is not what he's trying to do. What he is trying to do is implore believers personally about allowing whatever has come against them to, to be taken care of by God. And what he basically says is, don't get even, just give it to God. Instead of you worried about getting even and doing what you, just give it to God. He says, God, God says, vengeance is mine. Do you know how refreshing it can be in your life when you release these things to God? I've been helped in two ways in the last few years of my life as I've struggled sometimes with resentment or unforgiveness or holding a grudge. The first one basically was suggested by Robert Lewis, who many of you know, I think played at Louisiana Tech, was from Ruston. Uh, he uh, wrote this series called Men's Fraternity. It's a great guy. He spoke to men a few years ago, and he said this to them. He said, realize that most people that hurt you or brought pain to you, they didn't necessarily intend to do that. Most of them didn't have like a mean streak about them that they just wanted. They, it just kind of happened. You know, they did the best they thought. It's kind of like some of our parents, right? They didn't always do what was right. I just said that on TV, didn't I? Yeah, man, I'm just blowing it today. Most of your parents didn't do what was right all the time, did they? No. Most of you who are parents, you didn't do everything right. You know, I've been a parent for some years. My wife's been... We have not done everything right. But it wasn't because we were malicious toward our children. Sometimes we just... Leslie, sometimes we didn't know any better, did we? And I hope and pray that they will forgive me of some of my shortcomings in the days to come because they just recognized we didn't, didn't intend 
to mess up. Wasn't our intention. It, it helps me a lot to know that there are certain church members. You know, they didn't they didn't mean what they said. They really were only doing what they thought was right at the moment. There are other people out there. That's the way. And you know what? It's so much easier to just say, "Hey, it's no big deal." And then when there are those individuals that come, like he's talking about here, that really intend to cause harm, when I recognize it's not me that needs to get even, it's not, when I realize that I can just say, God, I give these folks to you. And God, you said that you can work in your own way. And you know what, God? Maybe through your work, there won't just be punishment. That's not just what I'm calling for. But God, what I pray is that you would redeem this situation in their lives to turn them toward you. How much more joy I've had in my life since I realized that I can release these things to God. And what Paul says is that we ought to demonstrate love in this way. By simply releasing, leave God room to work. Let God work in this person's life. Then he says, just return good for evil. He says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That proverb, it comes from who knows where. I've read different commentaries trying to find out where does that come from? This idea of heaping coals on their head. There's no agreement as far as where it came from, but there is agreement on this, of what it means. It basically means as you return goodness and as you've released them to God, somehow their guilt, their shame, God's conviction can come upon them and speak to them about who they are and what they've done. And good can overcome evil. You don't believe it? Look at the life of Jesus Christ. I point you to the cross, which was meant to be evil, but God used for good. I know giving them something when they're hungry, giving them, that's giving them better than what they deserve. Just as I said earlier, so have all of us received better than what we deserved from Christ Jesus. From what I see in the scripture, what I understand, all of us were enemies of, the, of Christ. It's language that's used by Paul. All of us were enemies because we were in our sin. And what did he do? He died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us so that we could have life. And if he shows that love for us and he gives us better than what we deserve in such a way, so are we encouraged, motivated to love one another. Love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love the church Love those who are difficult to love. We are to love. Genuinely, authentically, one another.
Let's pray together. Father. We give thanks this morning that you did love us in such an incredible way. And Father, we pray that that love that you've demonstrated would not only be a reality in our own hearts, but Lord, it would be something that would be demonstrated in our relationship with others. God, I pray for individuals today that just need to show their love for their brothers and sisters in the church. Some of them maybe today, people in this place that need to, need to say, hey, I, I need a church to belong to, a family. God, give them courage today to come. And God, for those of us in this place that are tempted every day to hold a grudge, unforgiveness in our hearts and lives, Convict us and help us as we release others to you, as we reconcile as we should, as we're the peacemakers that you've called us to be. God, speak your truth to us now, even through this invitation. In Jesus' name.